the situation in Afghanistan appears to still be pure chaos. Uh, they are getting people out, though, by the thousand. Uh, Canada yesterday announced that they got about 500 and some out on a flight. The U.S. is reporting tens of thousands. So I think they're pushing about 80,000 people evacuated over the last 10 days or so. So they are getting people out. Um, all the allies are working on this together. You show up at the airport, you get on a flight. It doesn't matter if you're going to Canada or the U.S. or Germany or Poland or wherever. Uh, the allies will get you out. No doubt it is a very messy final chapter that was expected by most observers to happen eventually. The speed of the collapse, though, and the chaos that has ensued, uh, I think, has been surprising to most observers. Uh, and it has people drawing parallels to the chaotic end to the Vietnam War 50 years ago. And uh, the pictures are sort of jarring, right? And they, they bring back a lot of those memories. Uh, let's talk a bit about parallels with Vietnam. There are some differences there, too. We're going to chat with Eugene Lang, who is a lecturer, an adjunct professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University, uh, and uh, also works with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, Mr. Lang, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you for having me. When we take a look at what's going on in Afghanistan right now, I mean, and the entire conflict itself, there are some parallels with what happened in Vietnam, for sure. I think, you know, right from the start, when you take a look at, originally, uh, the coalition forces and, in the end, American forces allying themselves um, with a force that, in the end, turned out just not willing to continue the fight, right? Yeah, I think that's that's certainly one of the parallels. I mean, they both started more or less as counterinsurgencies, both of those wars with the Americans working with the indigenous or local forces, both in South Vietnam and in Afghanistan, where they essentially worked with NATO countries to build an army, build security forces. Um, And the Americans fought on the ground, as you know, in both countries for many years. So did Canada and other NATO countries in Afghanistan. Uh, And now uh, we see a fairly precipitous U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, The U.S. withdrawal from South Vietnam was a somewhat slower process, and the South Vietnamese army lasted a lot longer. But eventually it, too, collapsed in the face of the enemy, even though it was a Western-trained force, a Western-financed force for many years, a Western-equipped force with pretty sophisticated technology for that period of time. And you can say exactly the same things about the uh, Afghan National Security Forces today that, as you pointed out, collapsed apparently in a matter of just a few days after the final 2,500 American forces and 15,000 civilian contractors withdrew. So it seems to me we've got two pretty clear lessons here that going in and equipping and training, and you can do all of those things with these forces, but if they aren't willing to carry the fight, um, all that doesn't matter. Well, that that's a, a comment that's been made a lot now in the U.S., uh, and I, I think it's got a lot of wisdom associated with it. James Clapper was the first one that I saw a couple of weeks ago make this point, or a week or so ago, that you can't buy the will to fight. It right. was essentially his distillation of the of the problem uh, in Afghanistan. Two trillion dollars of the U.S. money spent in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, plus a lot of money from other NATO countries. I think Canada probably spent $40 billion, maybe, or tw- at least $20 billion during its time in Afghanistan, all in military, uh, official development assistance, reconstruction funding, and so on. Um, but at the end of the day, if the forces, as well-trained as they may be, as well-equipped as they may be, if, if they aren't prepared to engage 
the enemy, uh, things can unravel pretty quickly. And the question is, why weren't they engaged, prepared to engage after really only a few thousand U.S. forces withdrew? And this is, I guess, a question that analysts and scholars will chew on for many years. When we go back to the beginning, and you were involved uh, when, when this whole NATO coalition started back in 2001, you were part of the discussions in, in, uh, regarding the Canadian involvement. What was the plan? Was there a plan? What was the long-term? I mean, we knew the initial thing was to go in and deal with al-Qaeda. Okay, fine. Beyond that, was there a plan in place? Well, do you mean a plan from the U.S. side or a yeah, plan yeah, from the Canadian yeah. side? No, well, there really wasn't a long-term plan on the American side in the early 2000s. Uh, they had achieved the initial objectives, as you just pointed out, very quickly, in a matter of weeks, actually. Uh, and were trying to consolidate their authority in Afghanistan. But, you know, they'd taken over a country that really didn't have a functioning government even before. The Taliban regime didn't control the entire country. Uh, it was a pretty medieval state of affairs there in many ways. I visited Afghanistan a few times in the early 2000s. And it had been a war-torn country for decades. It had to be rebuilt. There was no ba- a lot of the basic infrastructure wasn't there. I remember the first time I went to Kabul in 2003, 60 or 70 percent of the buildings were destroyed to, from the results of the Civil War. Um, and the Americans didn't really have a plan uh, right after 9-11 or even a year or two later, a long-term plan to deal with reconstruction or what some refer to as nation-building. This started to gradually develop over time, mm-hmm. and the Americans looked to other countries to take on a lot of this burden, particularly, um, in one instance, Canada. Uh, had, uh, Secretary of Defense had been, um, in the early 2000s, wanting Canada to take on a major role in this connection, and we did for, for a number of years. So we talk about the parallels, and I think, you know, when we see the pictures coming out of Afghanistan, it really is reminiscent of the fall of Saigon. But how are these conflicts different? Because, I mean, they're not carbon copies of each other. No, there's all kinds of differences, I think. Uh, There's similarities that the media are picking up on, and, you know, the fall of the two capitals is the the similarity of the moment. Um, And there are striking parallels there, I think. Uh, Notwithstanding what the president says in the United States, he dismisses the parallels. I think he's completely wrong about them. They're striking parallels. They're obvious. To me, the big big difference, there's a lot of differences, but the big one is the United States had no choice but to withdraw from Vietnam in the early 1970s. They'd lost 58,000 troops, about 140,000 wounded. It was the most divisive issue in American politics by the early 1970s and had been for years. Two presidential elections were essentially fought over the Vietnam War. Um, it, cr- it caused all kinds of civil unrest in the United States in the late 60s, as we know, in the early 70s. It wouldn't have mattered who the administration was in Washington. The American public was exhausted by Vietnam, and the American government would have had to have pulled out American forces. That, to my mind, is not the situation in Afghanistan today at all. This is kind of a forgotten war in the United States. I mean, they've suffered a couple of thousand fatalities, which is tragic, over a 20-year period, though, uh, almost twice as long as they were in Vietnam, for 5% of the casualties, 5% of the fatalities. It has not been a top-of-mind issue for Americans in the last two presidential elections. Uh, For some American politicians, it's been something that they've made commitments to do to this withdrawal, both Trump and Biden. 
But I think uh, it was clear to me that Biden had options here. He didn't have to follow through with what Trump had sort of negotiated. Um, the, that kind of political pressure in the United States, like there was in the early 70s in respect to Vietnam, does not ex- did not exist today. And I actually saw a poll last week that said, now something like half of Americans think this precipitous withdrawal was a bad idea, whereas two or three weeks ago there may have been 60 or 70 percent saying it's time to bring the troops home. But it wasn't a central issue in American politics the way Vietnam was the central issue in the early 70s. No, you're, you're absolutely right. If you take a look at the polling, it was, it was almost schizophrenic because I think it was about 68% that said, yeah, the U.S. should withdraw from Afghanistan, and about 68% that said, yeah, we should leave some troops in Afghanistan. So you're right. People weren't really dialed in and didn't have strong opinions one way or the other on this situation up until as recently as a month ago. Which is not surprising because typically, you know, fatalities concentrate the mind in these sorts of wars. And there haven't been, I don't think there's been an American fatality in in, uh, Afghanistan for about 18 months. And, and, you know, the casualty rate among American forces has been dwindling over time as their presence has been reduced over time. It hasn't had that kind of intensity in the American political discourse that Vietnam had. And it's never had that. I mean, there there was never any... Street protests or whatever, yeah. Well, also, the other thing, too, remember, Americans were always confused about why they were in Vietnam. Even the American political class was fairly confused about it. Americans were not confused about why they were in Afghanistan, at least originally. They they knew that that is where, there was a consensus view that that is where the terrorists that perpetrated the 9-11 attacks were trained and came from, and that that government, so-called government, of the Taliban back then, harbored them, and there was no misunderstanding on anyone's part about why the United States invaded. Vietnam was a much different kettle of fish in that connection. It was always, you know, a bit unclear exactly. I mean, there was the domino theory and there was other theories, but Afghanistan wasn't like that. So in my my view, at least, uh, Biden had options. He chose this option for whatever reasons. Again, this will be chewed on for a long time. And uh, and it's been at least badly executed. I think we can all agree oh, on sure. that. It's been terribly executed. I would argue it was a huge strategic policy error to begin with, but certainly the execution of it has been abysmal. It's been a disaster. So, um, you know, with the uh, perspective of history, when this is looked at 50 years from now, the way Vietnam is today, where does this stack up? As you say, I think uh, there'll be a lot of um, picking apart what happened here. Will it be seen as a massive failure like Vietnam is now seen historically? Is this rise to that level? Is it worse? Well, Vietnam, I, I think ironically, maybe isn't seen as such a massive failure now because the country of Vietnam is a unified country. It's a fairly successful country. It's relatively prosperous. It's, it's peaceful and it's kind of integrated into the international system the united states has diplomatic relations with vietnam um but afghanistan is not vietnam it it didn't have the infrastructure the economy the literacy basic literacy levels vietnam had to build on once Mm -hmm. the war ended and you know afghanistan is a very fragmented country it's a very um it's, it's an anachronism it really is when you go there you feel like you're going back in time right hundreds of years and it takes a long time to, to build a country like that into a functioning, if you could ever build it into a functioning nation state uh, that was truly integrated into 
the global family of nations and the global economy, it would take a very long time, probably a lot longer, well, definitely a lot longer than Vietnam took in that connection. Fascinating discussion, Mr. Lang. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. That is Eugene Lang, who is a lecturer and an adjunct professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University and a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, and as you heard, he was part of, you know, he actually, in, in the piece he wrote, talks about meeting with Donald Rumsfeld and um, back at the beginning of all of this and sort of realizing that, okay, we once we've dealt with al-Qaeda, then what are we going to do?